you will, Mark chapter number three, and uh, we'll continue our series, It Hurts to Serve. It Hurts to Serve. Have you ever had somebody question your motives? Uh, yeah, uh, please don't point, uh, but uh, maybe you're reasoning to decisions you're making. Uh, maybe you choose to serve in church and friends wonder if you've actually lost your mind. Uh, maybe you choose to be a follower of Jesus and you're criticized by your family. Uh, you know, Mark pauses to tell us at the beginning of, or at the middle of chapter number three of the followers of Jesus, gives their details, who they are, where they're from, uh, and then almost like he jumps right back into, in verse number 20, uh, the narrative of what Jesus has been doing. Pausing just for six or seven verses, telling us about the followers, and then he goes right back to... Jesus' ministry. As soon as he comes down from the mountain with his followers, he's surrounded yet again. All of a sudden, he's surrounded to the point that he could not even stop to eat. The followers, the people who are surrounding him, and others who are watching this from a distance, those who are closely connected to Jesus, were wondering if he could maintain the pace. Wondering if this was wise, wondering if he could actually continue going forward. You know, it's one thing to make yourself busy in your day-to-day -day life. It's another thing to try and keep up with the demands of other people that they place on you. Uh, maybe you're trying to just serve the Lord and yet somebody asks you, can you do this and this and can you do this and this? Or maybe you're trying to do this project at work and somebody else hands you another responsibility and another and another and, an, and it's just a never-ending pace and you're trying to keep up with the expectations of other people. Jesus' ministry was so pronounced that his mental state would be called into question here in our text. He's asked if he could keep up, but how would he respond to the people who seemingly were trying to steer his ministry, trying to direct his ministry? If you've got your Bible, Mark chapter 3 and verse number 20 is where we're going to pick up. And if you don't have your Bible, the, the verses will be on the screen for you this morning. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. So much of a crowd that Jesus and his followers can't even stop to eat. That's a pretty busy day. Verse 21, and when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, he is beside himself. Now think about this. They weren't concerned that he wasn't eating. They were concerned that he wasn't eating and the effect of him not eating. It wasn't, hey, we, we want you to stop and eat. Hey, Jesus, you need to eat. It was, you've gone insane. Uh, your lack of eating is causing a response. Verse 22, and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub, which is the prince of the rulers of the flies. It's another term for Satan. All right, the Lord of the filth, which is Satan. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables. Mentioned for the very first time, he's speaking in parables now. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that 
house cannot stand. Verse 26, and as Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. There is an end coming. Uh, Let's pray together and then we'll jump into our text and message this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, thank you for the music today and encouraging us and challenging us, looking forward. Thank you for what you've done, but looking forward to what you're going to do in the future. Lord, thank you for how you are already blessing. Thank you for the fact that you are using your people in this day and time. Uh, Lord, the things that we read about and your works are not a thing of the past. They're a thing of the present. Lord, you are working. You are moving. You are doing something. Lord, thank you for allowing us to see it and take a small part in it. Lord, I ask that you please speak to our hearts today and uh, please give us what we need this morning. Lord, if there's someone here or watching online that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, please help them to see that today is their day. Today is the day where they need to receive you. Their greatest need is a Savior. Lord, help us as the church to ask ourselves, are we following you? And what does that look like? Help us not to be swayed by the opinions of those around us, Lord, but help us to stay focused on our calling, our purpose, and that's to follow you. Lord, I ask that you please speak to my heart, cleanse me, any sin unconfessed, please forgive me, purify me as I speak to your people this morning. Please give us what we need in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down number one, the contention. The contention. Jesus comes down from the mountain that he went up the mountain in verse number 12 with his followers, verse 13, to call out and to signify who the disciples were. But when he comes back down, the crowd hasn't left. You would think that the reason they came once he left, that they would dissipate. Yet you see here in verse number 20 that they haven't gone anywhere. We see the behavior that's mentioned in verse 20 and 21. You would think that people would give him a break. That they would see his needs, verse 20, and the multitude coming together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. They had needs, and their needs directed their behavior. They were thinking that, man, we're going to come down from the mountain, and the crowd's going to be gone, and we're going to stop at Chipotle and have have lunch, and then we're going to go get Starbucks and get our coffee, and uh, then we're going to move on with ministry. and That's how it's going to unfold, but the crowd is still there. They immediately go right back into ministry. And you would think that these people would have said, you know, Jesus needs at least an hour lunch break. But that's not what they did. Their needs for Jesus directed their behavior. And it's not much different today. You know, when we have needs, we tend to let our needs direct our decision making, don't we? You know, I, I, I'm short of funds this week, so I won't go to Starbucks. And that would be tragic. <laughs> uh, when I'm, uh, when I'm sick, I'll take a day off work. You know, we let our needs kind of direct our decisions. But what about when our needs have a negative impact? You know, when, when I'm hurting, I'm prone to lash out at someone. Uh, when I'm suffering and someone wants to help me, I push them away. Uh, thinking that I've got this. I, I can do this on my own. Trying to convince everybody and myself that I'm okay. There's a sobering quote that gets used often, and it's this, hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. I'm glad that Jesus addresses people who have needs in John chapter 16, verse 33. 
He said, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, trouble, problems, hardship. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, I am greater than your hardship. I am greater than your problem. I am greater than your need. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' closest friends try to sneak him out, believing that he had gone mad. In verse 21, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. You know, the, the crowd won't let him eat a meal. and uh, Jesus is going to lose his mind. He, he's going to get dehydrated. He's going to have all these problems. Uh, you, this crazy talk is a result of all that he's gone through. And these people are the problem. But the term friends is interesting here. His friends that try and gather him, it literally means those closest to him. Some commentators believe that his own family arrive at this time. We'll see in verse number 31 his family shows up concerned for Jesus' well-being. Concerned that Jesus has gone a little bit too far. Maybe they were concerned that his, for his health, his well-being. And maybe they felt the best thing that he could do was to remove himself completely and get some rest and reset, refocus, come back. But they do so in an unusual way. It says that they went out to lay hold on him. The term lay hold is the same wording that we get in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas and all of the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus. They're literally coming to take him by force if necessary to lay hold on him. You know, this is serious but also unnecessary. Now, why did Jesus come? We know that Jesus was consumed with passion for other people to minister. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. But how often is the close followers, how often are they related to us? You know, how often do we have good intentions, but we discourage people from ministering. Uh, maybe we say something like, hey, don't overdo it. Or maybe we say, uh, you know, don't be, don't be that intense or, or you're too intense or uh, you need to settle it down a little bit or maybe you should do less. But we need to think about what we're saying. When someone is passionate about ministering, when someone is passionate about serving, if we're not careful, we can discourage people from following Jesus rather than encouraging them to follow Jesus. We're not the Holy Spirit. We don't know what's going on in that person's life. We need to make sure that we balance our comments with Scripture. We see someone being prodded and poked and God is doing work in their heart. We want to fan that flame, not throw water on that flame. We want to encourage, not discourage. We see the behavior of Jesus. But then number two, we see the building that's mentioned. Verse number 22, the scribes, remember those uh, keepers of the law, those curators of the old teachings, they had their own answer for this man. And what was their answer in verse number 22? He is possessed. That has to be it. 
They refused to acknowledge that he was the son of God, refused to acknowledge the work he was doing, and instead said he must be influenced by Satan. And that was an easy accusation for them to make. It would dismiss Jesus' authority for those who may be leaning in his direction and maybe those who were kind of on the fence. It would dismiss his, uh, his miracle work. It would make sense. But Jesus spins it around and introduces parables, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He talks about how Satan would never cast out Satan. Surely Satan would not work against himself. That doesn't make sense. Satan's goal is to control men, not to free men. Uh, To corrupt men, not to release them, not to set them free, not to bring about freedom. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief, Satan, the enemy, cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus' purpose was not the same. Jesus was freeing people while Satan was binding people. He talks about the house being divided, the the kingdom being divided, and a kingdom and a house divided against itself could not stand. The greatest opposition that a house, a kingdom, the greatest way that a kingdom can be hindered, a house can be stopped, isn't opposition from the outside. It's opposition from the inside. Why does Satan work overtime to keep you and your spouse apart? Why does Satan work overtime trying to bring disruption into the lives of your kids? Because Satan knows that if he can disrupt from within, he has a better chance of destroying. He he doesn't need outside opposition when we do his work for him. He doesn't need to send someone to come and and try and disrupt from the outside when we do his work for him. When somebody sitting over here gets a gripe with somebody over here, somebody says, well, I don't like that Sunday school teacher. I, I don't like the way that that person looked at me. And all of a sudden we have a seed that's planted. And if we're not careful, that seed, we can foster it. We can protect it. Remember Wally? The movie, uh, Wally protected that little spring, that little sprout, uh, protected it over. Wow. You know, it, he protected that, that little bitty plant because it was the only source of life and he guarded it. And sometimes that's how we guard our seeds of bitterness and how we guard our pride. Now, I'm going to pr- protect this. Hey, I know what they meant. Now, here's a side note. You don't know what they meant. It is impossible for you to understand someone's intention. You won't fully ever grasp someone's intention. So why try and assume that you know someone's intention? You remember, uh, what does God say? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. Well, pastor, our our church would be so much better if we had more of these people or more of this or or more of this ministry. But God has set those members as it hath pleased him. We are not the standard where we have the say-so of what we want. It should be what God wants. What is his goal? Verse number 25, 1 Corinthians 12, that there should be no schism in the body. 
disruption. No kind of turmoil, but that the members should have the same care one for another. That means that I should treat a visitor the way I treat my best friend. And that means that I should treat those who are very first time, second time, third time, the way that I treat the person who I'm going to go to lunch with this afternoon. The person that I care the most about in the room. I should have the exact same care and concern for the person that I don't even know their name on the other side of the room. That should, the same care. And what does that do? It protects and guards against those schisms, those seeds that could get planted. If God has equipped the body of Christ with individual roles, what part do you play? What is your part in the body? Which, which tool, if we were talking about a, a tool belt, you know, which tool would you be? What would you be compared to this morning? You know, we, we have different tools and every single tool has a different purpose. Uh, this is my uh, wife's grandfather's tool belt. And uh, we'll see if it actually fits this morning and uh, how messy it will be in just a minute. Uh, but uh, he's with the Lord now, and uh, he was, his name was Carl, Carl. And uh, so his nickname was Cut a Corner Carl. And so, <laughs> true, true, all right? Because uh, Carl could fix anything, all right? You might not like it when Carl got done with it, but Carl could fix anything, all right? So uh, how about different uh, tools in the tool belt? We've got some other things here uh, on the tool belt. Uh, are you a hammer? You know what a hammer's purpose is? To pound stuff, all right? Uh, so are you a, a hammer? You, you somebody who, you're everything. Man, I'm going to pound it. Uh, man, pastor, it's going to get done. And we're, we're going to pound it. And we're going to make sure it's done. But a hammer has destructive purposes. Uh, you don't say, man, I'm going to fix something. Where's my hammer? You know, uh, a, a hammer does what a hammer was created for. It drives, it pounds. And sometimes there are people in the church, they're destructive, there are people in our lives who are destructive. And if we're not careful, we'll become that hammer. Hey, and I spend time with other hammers who are always destructing. And if I'm not careful, I become a remake of a destructive person. Which tool are you? Uh, there are crowbars uh, that are good for stuff. I had to open uh, my front door with a crowbar uh, Day before yesterday, Tom Bush, it happened again. Wherever Tom is this morning, it happened again. And uh, so, uh, but crowbars, what do crowbars do? They pull things apart. Do you know there are people in the church and their purpose is to pull you apart? There are people in the church, I mean, I don't like how they spend that much time. I'm going to try and get in between those people and maybe uh, accuse that person so, so that I can be friends with them. And I might have to say something bad against this person over here, but my purpose is to pull them apart. And what happens? The more time you spend with somebody who pulls, it's just a little thing, but it becomes a big thing. Uh, it, it, it might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's going to be a big deal. Uh, see, there are people who pull other people apart. Uh, there are uh, saws. Man, we, we like saws. This thing had a shield on it when I left my house this morning, not now. Uh, but when I, when I saw, there are people in the church who are saws. Yeah, saws can be good thing. I mean, we can build stuff with a saw, but what is a saw known for? Cutting. 
cutting. Hey, I'm going I'm to cut with this saw. There are people in church, man, you give them a moment and they'll cut somebody down. They'll cut and they'll destroy and they'll hurt somebody. And if we're not careful, we spend time with somebody who's all about cutting somebody down and we'll find that we're cutting people down. And all of a sudden, man, we're, we had a sweet spirit and, and people enjoyed spending time with us. And we look around, it's like, man, why did anybody want to spend time with me anymore? Could it be that it's because you're cutting other people down? And people don't want to get caught. Uh, there are levels in our toolbox. You know, you know what a level does? It tells the, the level, but the goal is balance. A goal of a level is not to be one side or the other. And there are some people in church who sit on the fence and they stay in neutral the whole time. Man, I, I, can't, I can't really side with them. And I, I can't really I side with them. I, I can't really be, I don't want to be cold for God. I, I don't want to be against the people of God. But I, man, I don't, I don't really don't want to be called weird or anything. So I, I'm not going to be on fire for God either. I'm just going to stay right here in the middle and I'll be lukewarm. What does it say in the Bible about being lukewarm? God says, man, that, that makes me sick. I want to spit that person out of my mouth. That is not appetizing, tasteful. Uh, some people are on the level and that's all they want to be. Uh, you could be a screwdriver uh, where you say, hey, I, I'm going to take, and sometimes I'm going to be uh, used for good and I'm going to put some things together. Uh, there are certain times in our life where we uh, put things together and we get together with other people and say, hey, let's fix this. Let's work this out and let's work together uh, in that. Uh, sometimes people are uh, wrenches and man, they throw a monkey wrench in everything. Don't point. Uh, man, when I just spend time with them, man, they always mess things up. And uh, that's a monkey wrench. But if I'm not careful, I can turn people completely away and say, man, nobody can ever do it good enough for my liking. Remember, it's as God put people in the body as it hath pleased him. Uh, there are putty knives in the church. Do you know that there are certain people who have a gift of patching things up? Man, you're just gifted. Hey, you know, I can sense that you're, there's some tension between you and this other brother. Uh, why don't we go and work things out together? Uh, why, don't, why don't you allow me to kind of go and, and be a mediator? Uh, let's patch things up together. Uh, there are pliers in the church. Uh, there are different kinds of pliers in the church. And pliers can be used for, for good or for bad. Uh, there are different things. There's duct tape. I didn't get duct tape this morning, uh, but uh, I didn't want somebody to steal it. Uh, duct tape has a tendency to, of walking away, all right? Uh, but the thing that I like is measuring tape. Most everybody, if you have a tool belt, you've got a tape measure. All right, you've got a tape measure some, somewhere. What is a tape measure for? It's for measuring. You know, you get a tape measure and you sit down and say, all right, what do I need? What do I need? Now, before I go and start a project, I'm going to measure. And that measurement is going to help me determine the cost of a project. That determines how much wood I buy. It determines how many materials I need. It determines how I can get the job done and what that is going to cost. Remember back at the, in January, we talked about counting the cost. Hey, if I'm going to follow Jesus, there's going to be a cost involved. But I need to measure what that cost is going to be. And I need to ask myself, am I willing to pay it? I want to be a tape measure. I want to say, I, I want to measure this thing out. 
I want to make sure because typically you don't find a measuring tape in a negative light. Now, if you cut wrong, you're like, man, I got to cut that thing. Where's the measuring tape? Uh, But most of the time, measuring tapes are positive. Most of the time. So in the church, in the grand scheme, which tool are you? Are you one of those positive tools or, or when are, you, are you one of those that is constantly cutting? You're constantly tearing apart. You're constantly pounding. You're constantly destroying. You're destructive. Or are you one that's used to measure and count the cost? And you're a positive reinforcement of what God's trying to do. See, all of us, that there should be no schism in the body. That the members should have the same care. He, he concludes this thought with an analogy about a strong man. Now look at verse number 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. And he talks about this strong man being a part of what God is trying to do. The strong man here is Satan. He's showcasing that Satan is the strong man who must be bound. His house is Satan's dominion. His goods are the people who he empowers. But Jesus is the one who enters into his house to spoil his work. Where did Jesus come? Jesus didn't take Satan back up to heaven. Jesus came to Satan's dominion. And what did Jesus do? It's awesome to see Jesus disrupt Satan's work. It's awesome to see that Satan has a plan, and I love watching God destroy Satan's plan. It's awesome. Jesus shows up in your life and mine and shows that what Satan was trying to do, God shows that he's greater than Satan is, that he doesn't have the authority in your life that he thinks he does, that we think he does. And even though Satan is a roaring lion, he has no authority in our lives that God doesn't allow. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Do you know that Satan will never touch a child of God without the permission of the one who loves you more than you could possibly imagine? He will never touch a child of God without the permission of the one who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He knows exactly how much pressure is being applied. And he knows exactly how much pressure we can handle. He is that good doctor who knows the exact prescription that we need and how much that you and I should be able to take. He's the good doctor. He's the great physician. He's the one who knows exactly the prescription that we need. And then we see in verse 28 through 30, the blasphemy, the blasphemy. And Jesus turns his attention to the scribes. He's been asking questions, but now he's focused on them. He had been accused of being an ally of Satan. And he told them that blasphemies could be forgiven. He says, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Every sin can be forgiven except one. Every sin can be forgiven except one. One so vile and heinous that it cannot be atoned. And that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
This is the unpardonable sin that Jesus is addressing. The unpardonable. Some would believe that this is cursing the Holy Spirit, taking God's name in vain. Uh, Maybe it's adultery or some kind of a, a sensual sin. Maybe murder. Maybe it's suicide. But all of those things can be forgiven. The one sin that cannot be give, forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. It's something entirely different. This is the ongoing, continual rejection of the Holy Ghost calling in someone's life to draw them to the point of salvation. This is someone saying no to God's voice. That cannot be forgiven. What sin could you stand before God and say, it's under the blood? All of those sins that we would think, but if you stood before God and said, I said no to you, that cannot be forgiven. God will not force himself into our lives. He is a perfect gentleman. I know it's a salvation written to the church, but it's a great analogy in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, that he stands at the door and knocks. He waits on us to open our heart's door. And God cannot forgive someone who rejects him. It's not the sin of ignorance. Oh, pastor, I didn't know any better. It's the sin of arrogance. That you know that Jesus is calling you. That you have knowledge. That you know that Jesus died on the cross. You know that he loves you. You know that he suffered for you. You know that he desires to save you. And you still say no. That is the unpardonable sin. That is rejecting who he is. See, Jesus did not die for the sins of mankind for you and I to reject his free gift and try and get there on our own. He died so that you and I could be forgiven and accept what he did for you. For you. He died for you. The unpardonable sin is when I know that Jesus died for me and I emphatically say no, rejecting him. Now, let me ask you this morning in love, and sincerity, are you guilty of that sin? Because if you're breathing, you've still got time. It's not too late. That unpardonable last breath moment where you could receive Christ and you reject him, it'll be too late then. You will not stand before God and say, give me another chance and he offered it. You have one opportunity and maybe that opportunity is today. God does not care if you're baptized without salvation. God does not care how good you are. God wants to know, have you received Christ? Have you accepted the gift of salvation? The only thing that gets you into heaven is going through the door. John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. John 14 verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the way to heaven. It's not about being a Baptist. It's not about being a good person. It's not about getting baptized. It's not about this list of rules and regulations. It is about what you have done with Jesus that gets you to heaven. Remember, A.W. Tozer said, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. And no one will stand before God. No one, history, past, present, or future, will stand before God and say, I came another way than by Jesus. Jesus is the door to eternal life. The contention that they had with Jesus. But then lastly this morning, we see the connection. The connection. 
Get the picture in your minds for where they were that day. Who was there? Thousands of people trying to hear him, see him, touch him. But there were some who were connected in ways that others weren't. Look at verse 31. We see the family. The family. There came then his brethren and his mother and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him and they said to him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. Imagine being the family of Jesus, growing up, knowing that he was different, knowing that he was special, knowing that he was set apart. But imagine that same group rejecting him. John chapter 7 and verse 5 tells us, For neither did his brethren, his own family, believe in him. Imagine seeing the work of Jesus firsthand and saying, That's not the Son of God. He's not perfect. He's not who he says he is. But think about all those in church today who see God work firsthand and see the power of a changed heart and life and see someone radically transformed because of the power of the gospel. And they say, that's not for me. See, you can make all of these things apply to following steps with Jesus. How about those who sit on the sidelines who have no intention of ever getting in the game? How about those who sit on the sideline and say, I'm never going to get baptized. I'm never going to follow him. I'm never going to join a church. I'm never going to serve. I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to do lovingly, respectfully. If that is your story, what are you doing? Why sit on the sideline when God wants you to be in the game? What is it about the sidelines that's so attractive? The guys who sit on the bench during the game while that starting five is out on the floor, they're not sitting there because of the cool courtside seats. They're sitting there for an opportunity to get in the game. First, you got to make sure that you're on the team. Have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? Have you joined up? You know, do you want to be in the game? Uh, what is holding you back this morning from taking a step in following Jesus? It should not take us five years to determine, am I going to get baptized? Let me, should I get baptized? Uh, Pastor, I'm going to pray about that. Uh, should I join a church? Should I be discipled? Should I follow Jesus? That shouldn't take any time at all because why? We're commanded to do those things. We're commanded. That is a simple decision. I, I, one of my previous pastors I worked for said something very wise, and I've always held on to this, and it's very simple. There are some things in life that you don't have to pray about. Yeah. That's true. What are those things? The things that Jesus said to do. Yeah. I don't have to pray about those things. I know that I should. It comes back to whether or not I'm going to be, well, pastor, you know, we're praying about our next step, and we're praying about uh, how that unfolds. I get all that, and that's wonderful. That shouldn't take you five years. It should not take you a long time to determine, should I follow? Let me think about that. Uh, Pastor, help me pray about, should I follow? No. (laughs) No, because he commands it. It should be expected. It should be expected. It also comes back here and his own family wants an audience. This is a great reminder to us, side note, that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She actually had more children. 
right? Uh, certain denominational groups believe that uh, Mary never had any few other children other than Jesus. We see that clearly in Scripture and history tells us that she had more children. But these are half-brothers and sisters. They thought Jesus is going too far, too extreme, so they call him. And how does Jesus respond? Lastly, the followers. Look at verse 33. Lastly this morning, he answered them saying, Who is my mother? Who is my brethren? Hey, Jesus, there's people on the outside. Your mom was here. Your brothers and sisters are here. Your family's outside. And Jesus says, who is my family? Not asking what's their names, but trying to quantify the statement. Look at verse 34. And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. What was he saying? One author said, He put an eternity of distance between himself and his natural family. An eternity of distance. He had always been different. They had always seen him. They tried to hide it because what they had seen him and how he had been called growing up. Remember in John 8, 41, he was called, he was born of fornication. Hey, you're an illegitimate child, Jesus. That's what he had grown up with. But now Jesus would make it public. I'm not here for you guys. I'm sure that was stinging to them. I'm sure that might have come across as harsh to them. But he told them, I'm not here for your purpose. I'm here for my father's purpose. And he said, those who are with my father's family, they are my family. Those who are here for my father's plan, they are my family. His followers were more in tune with his father's plan, his father's purpose, his father's intention than his own family. And Jesus drew the attention to the spiritual ties more than the natural ties. It's a great reminder to us that when we die, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior, we're not going to heaven and say, hey, Uncle Bob and Uncle Jim and uh, hey, uh, my spouse. We're going to be one family. One family. No marriage, no given in marriage. We're not going to be focused on who we're related to, who we're married to. We'll be part of one family, the family of God. One family. Christ is the one who drew us together to himself through the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who unites us as one family. And he's the one that we're following. But are you a part of his family? Are you following Jesus? What are you doing to serve others? How are you serving? Obeying him is the key to staying connected to his family. When I obey him, I follow him. There are other people out there who are trying to do the same thing. And we are family. I won't sing the song, okay? Uh, but we are a family. That's who we are. And if you don't have a family connection today, you're not connected through Jesus, would you do something about that today? What would you do to be a part of his family? If you're not serving as a part of his family, what are you doing? What are you doing as part of? His family. It's great to say, man, we went to church. We had a good day. Man, that choir, man, that, that choir, that, that kids program, uh, that worship team, that whatever. But what are you doing to be a part of it? That is the purpose of the church. How do we serve? What does that look like? Are you a follower of Jesus? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you're here this morning and 
As our music team comes to prepare for invitation in just a moment, let me just ask you very simply, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you've placed your trust in Jesus? And maybe you're hearing you say, hey, Pastor, you know, I'm not sure. If I died, I don't know that I'd be on my way to heaven. I'm not convinced that heaven is my home. I just don't know. Hey, I'd like to pray for you this morning. I don't want to call you out or single you out or embarrass you, but I would simply like to be your friend this morning and pray for you. I would at least like to know who I'm praying for. You know, we could pray and say, God bless anybody who uh, is not a believer, but I'd love to know exactly who I can pray for. Put a face to a, to a hand. Put a, put a face to that prayer request. Uh, could I pray for you today? Maybe you're here in the room or watching online. You say, Pastor, I'm not sure that if I died, I'd be on my way to heaven. I don't know. Hey, could I pray for you this morning? Could I be your friend? Would you allow me to be your friend? Uh, the way that I would know who I'm praying for this morning would literally, while no one's looking around, in the quietness of this moment, for you to simply slip up your hand long enough for me to see it, you put it right back down. I will not call your name. I will not embarrass you. I won't send somebody to talk to you. I just want to pray for you. A pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Please pray for me. Is that you? While no one's looking around, heads are bowed, eyes closed. Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Please pray for me. Is that you? I want to be your friend this morning. Pastor, please pray for me. I'm not sure. I have a doubt. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Pastor, pray for me. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like I was, and you thought or you think that you're a believer. That's where I was when I, as a teenager. I had grown up in church my whole life, and I believed that I was saved. But in reality, I was not a believer. I went to church. I did all the right things. I dressed the part. I, I carried my Bible. I said all the right things. But it was all on the outside. There was nothing on the inside. And maybe that's you today. You look good on the outside. You came to church. You got dressed up. But do you have Jesus on the inside? A head knowledge of who Jesus is will not take you to heaven. Salvation is a work of the heart, not of the head. And if you don't have Jesus as your personal Savior, it is simply knowing that you're a sinner and you have a need. It's knowing that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And it's asking him to apply what he did on the cross to your heart and life. You can sit right in your seat where you are right now. We'll have personal workers that will be up front in just a moment that would love to pray with you, talk to you, encourage you, answer any question you may have. But would you simply talk to Jesus this morning about whatever your need is today? He is waiting for you. Would you talk to him today? If you're here and you have another need, whatever it is, would you talk to somebody? Maybe you need to take a step. Maybe you need to be baptized or maybe you need to join a church or maybe you need to serve, whatever that looks like. Would you simply do what he's leading you to do today? Father, please bless our time of invitation, reflection. Lord, I ask that you please help us to see that serving you is not a work of us, it's a work of you. It's you flowing through us, yet not I, but Christ through me. Lord, please Speak to hearts as only you can and help us to see our spiritual need. If someone doesn't know you as their personal Savior, help them to reach out to you. Lord, you're extending your hand down. Would someone reach up their hand to you today? Lord, please bless as only you can and help us to be serious about following you today. We may have people on the outside watching us, criticizing us, but Lord, help us to be focused that we want to follow you. Am I a follower of 
Jesus. Father, please bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us, please. Our personal workers are already down front. If you need to talk to someone, pray with someone, we're going to sing, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. Pastor Tim's going to lead us. If you need to speak to someone, maybe you need to.